Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, the Rockets Summer League, it's actually a thing this year. We got some takes on our first glimpse at the first round picks, and we'll get into the Astros' struggles uh, against a yet another bad team. This show brought to you by BetUS, America's favorite sports book. I'll tell you all about them later in the show, and I've got an exclusive discount for all you listeners out there. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and regular psychic, fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, why talk about the Twins beating up on the Astros to start things off when the Rockets Summer League had me bouncing off my walls in excitement? Did you see that? <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think I have a, an answer for you, Robert. The Rockets won. That I mean, that, that alone is worth something to talk about. I, I don't care if it's Summer League or you know, preseason or a scrimmage, the, the Rockets won. So <laughs> we'll take anything we can get there. Uh, the Astros, not so much, not this past weekend anyway. Yeah, let's put the Astros off a little bit because it's uh, <laughs> it, it's not a fun conversation. But, you know, it's, it's not just that the Rockets won. It was, they were excited. Uh, Jalen Green, my goodness. You know, I, I, I told you how excited I was about him going into the draft. I said the Rockets got the right guy. He already looked special. You saw a lot of the things that he could do out there. And Steven, he just has that it thing. I can already see it. He's got it, whatever it is. And, you know, you talk to him after the game, you see the interview with him. And he's like, yeah, I, I could take this up another level. I mean, this is just, you know, it's, it's summer league. That's it. Yeah, it's almost like he was being modest, wasn't he? He said, oh, you haven't seen everything yet, is, is kind of the way I perceived it. And what's interesting, Robert, is, you know, we talk about Jalen Green, but, you know, the, they went up against Evan Mobley, who the Rockets could have drafted as well. And uh, let's just say Green definitely got the better of that. <laughs> I mean, he didn't match up against Mobley much that game. But my point is, is that uh, Jalen Green and a couple of the other Rockets draft picks Looked mighty, mighty good. Evan Mobley, eh, so-so, you know. So, yeah, it, it was exciting. And Green, uh, you know, I mean, he still has development, and we know that, and it's summer league and all that. But how can you not get excited just, you know, watching the guy play? As you said, you know, he's got that it factor. We talked a lot about his intensity, you know, before the draft. That, that was one of his strong points. He led the team in scoring. He had 23 points. He was 50% from the field. He was four of nine from the three-point range. He had, I think he had two in about 12 seconds, Robert, if I recall. So he only committed one turnover in 30 minutes. You know, I mean, these are things, like I said, he's going to show flashes and he's going to stumble sometimes. But, man, it was interesting just, you know, all the things that he contributed. And I know we'll we'll talk about Alperin Singun. He he looked good, too. So, you know, you got to draw on some positives somewhere, especially where the Rockets are concerned. And this is a good place to start. Jalen Green looked special. There was a play where he's uh, in the corner. He gets away from his guy, and he makes a super difficult three-pointer in the corner, falling away. Uh, that was impressive. Just so much of what he was doing out there, you were like, man, this is just the beginning. This is the first game. He's 19 years old, and you, you talked about Green getting better of Mobley. I think the story was that Shangoon got the better of Evan Mobley. Shangoon's numbers 15 points, 15 rebounds, but it wasn't that. I, I'm not worried about numbers in a summer league game. I'm just worried about 
How does a guy like Shangun, who played in the Turkish League, who was the Turkish League MVP, how is he going to be against the best athletes in the world? And going up against Evan Mobley, a guy that a lot of people thought had the talent to be the first pick in the draft, Shangun looked like he could, he was hanging in. He wasn't intimidated. That's the big thing with me when I was watching it, Stephen. Shangun just did not seem like he cared that this was Evan Mobley or who this was. He had four blocks. He was uh, making some passes that sometimes they just didn't quite work because guys weren't weren't expecting it. But I'm like, yeah, Shangun, he, he's showing me a lot of his game. You, you still worry about a, a little bit about his defense, uh, his, his rebounding, even with the 15 rebounds. There were times where you know he just didn't have the bulk or the explosiveness as an athlete inside. But Stephen, he's very smart. This guy is super intelligent. You already see like all the elements for a guy that's going to be really special as an NBA guy because only, again, 19 years old like Jalen Green, but you you saw everything that you know he, he's potentially capable of and, and, and just the athleticism of not only Green and Shangun, but also Josh Christopher, which I can get into later. Yeah, I, I think that the biggest thing for me, Robert, is what you just said, and, and that's it, it's the ceiling of these guys like Shangun and and, and like Green, you know, they can only go up from here. You mentioned, you know, Sangoon had the, the numbers. He had four block shots. I know one of them at least was against Mobley. So, yeah, the, the fact that you're not intimidated, that, that goes a long way, especially when you're just coming into this situation. If he didn't look afraid now, imagine how much his confidence can grow as his game develops you know, as he continues to play. That's something that I'm looking forward to for sure. Then let's go to Josh Christopher because you just didn't think too much about him. You're like, well, this looks like he's a buddy of Jalen Green. Maybe he was picked because of that. Maybe this or that. You know, there's a lot of question marks about Josh Christopher by, you know, some Rockets fans, some NBA people. But I thought he looked like somebody that absolutely belonged on an NBA court. More than that, he looked like somebody that, already thought that he was a really good player and that goes a lot into it he already has that confidence and you know sometimes that can be a detriment we've seen that with other rockets over the years but uh defensively he looks like he's ready i mean he's a big guy you know this is a legit six five guy big wingspan you know broad shoulders broad base he's got that but also you know, he, he looked like he wanted to do some things offensively. There's a lot of work to do with his offensive game, but you see a lot of things that you go, well, if, if we can carve this and, you know, take a little off here and a little off there, we can just carve him into a, a really good player. And, and between these three guys, athletically, Stephen, I'm just excited to see this kind of athleticism, young athleticism, potential all out on the court at the same time. And you throw that... And with, you know, K.J. Martin was doing his K.J. Martin stuff and uh, meeting Evan Mobley up at the rim, getting up about eight feet off the ground. And you also had uh, the stuff that you're going to be able to see uh, with with Christian Wood um, when he gets into the mix with the Rockets. There's just so much athleticism on this team now. Yeah. And Robert, how I mean, when was the last time you could get excited about the Rockets having so many draft picks? on the roster at the same time, and then you put him in a summer league game, you know, and let him play together. I mean, that's that's really what it was for me as I was thinking about it over the weekend. It's like, man, look at all these guys, you know, most of them anyway, or were first-round draft picks. They're highly touted. You know, they're, they're going to be expected to do a lot in a short time, and I think we, we have to have a cautionary tale there. 
these guys are still in development. They're young. But, man, you got to start somewhere. And I'd say this past weekend, for all the players we just talked about, was a, was certainly a good start. And they're at least exciting to watch. And I know the NBA season is a grind, Robert, and it's it's going to be difficult for them to keep up that intensity throughout a whole season. I think we have to keep that in mind. But, man, you know, the, the way they bring it, the excitement that they can just bring to the Rockets, I think, will go a long way toward the team rebuilding for sure. A lot of times when you face these summer league teams, you go, well, they're just a bunch of scrubs out there. But Mobley, we know what he is. And then, you know, Okoro was playing a lot of minutes for Cleveland. Okoro was a starter for them last year, and he was a first-round pick. And this is not a scrub. So you had a couple of guys out there that, you know, these were real NBA players. This is not just a bunch of junk guys that they brought in. Uh, The last thing I wanted to mention on Josh Christopher was a quote that he had, Stephen. I just want to read this to you because I think this is very interesting. He says, everybody was saying I was a steal in the draft, but I mean, to me, I landed in a perfect situation. Me dropping to 24 was probably the best thing that could happen to me. I love that quote, Stephen. Boy, me too. I mean, you talk about attitude. Most guys, if they drop down on the draft... You know, they, they've got a chip on their shoulder, and I'm sure he does too, but it, it, it there's always there's such a thing as a healthy chip on your shoulder. You want to prove, but at the same time, you know, if you step back and just, you know, really analyze it, you know, why did I drop? Why did that? Maybe there's some things that I need to do better that the scouts weren't quite confident I could do. So the fact that he has that attitude, at least that tells me he's probably going to come into camp, you know, with, with at least a, a healthy attitude of wanting to prove himself instead of the, you know, I'm going to show you, I'm going to try, and, and I'm sure he will, but man, you don't hear that very often. The other thing, when you watch all three of these guys, Green, Shangoon, and Christopher, it's the summer league. Typically, one thing you don't talk about much in the summer league is defense. All of those guys were bringing it on defense. They were trying. Yeah. There was effort, effort, effort. Remember effort, James Harden? Remember that? <laughs> yeah, the E word. <laughs> Yeah, we need to use the E word more often for these guys. And and listen, most of them, you know, not, aren't necessarily known as defensive players, but one can develop. I mean, if you put in the work, Robert, I I, I firmly believe that any of these guys can at least be you know, average on defense at best. I, I mean, it, you know, it brings something to the defensive end, and that's something the Rockets desperately need right now is players who can step up. And, and play transition and play defense. The other thing that you, you think about is we haven't seen Garuba, and I don't know if he's going to be able to make it in time for summer league. He was at the Olympics, of course, but you add Garuba into the mix and speaking about defense, I mean, we talked about the potential that he's got. And you know, one thing, Stephen, I was listening to an interview with Jay Sean Tate over on Locked on Rockets uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Jay Sean Tate was talking about how uh, much the development has happened just in the couple of months since the end of the season and how these guys are working together, how John Lucas is working with these different guys. And sometimes I feel like the John Lucas thing gets overplayed a little bit. But at the same time, you know, just hearing that, you know, from Tate that they're they're working real hard and he's already seeing the development and, and guys that are uh, getting better. I mean, that's the big thing is this team is going to have to develop guys and develop them quickly. And, and really that's, that's where we can judge John Lucas and Steven Silas and what these guys are able to do with this group of young players. Well, and that's something I think we're going to have to keep reminding ourselves of, Robert, as the season goes along. 
is that these guys are still developing. And, and I know, you know, we hear a lot about John Lucas and, and whatnot, but when player after player mentions him, I mean, there's something to be said for that. I mean, Jay Sean Tate, he's, he's not a guy who's been with the Rockets for several years. This is only his second season there, and he's already talking about the kind of influence that guys like John Lucas has. And, and Jay Sean Tate, he's a guy that we talked about last year, Robert, when the season started, just of how, you know, the intensity that he brings and the hustle, you just, you keep adding guys like this to the roster. And, you know, no matter how many games the Rockets are going to win this next season, we have no idea. But if they just bring it, if they just be scrappy, the rest, I think, will come. And then the Rockets news this week, they definitely have added Tice. That's official now. You also right. have uh, the Nawaba thing. It looks like it's official. And then also Jay Sean Tate. They've guaranteed the last year of his contract. So, you know, sort of solidifying things with some of the moves that they made. The the only, I would say the only downside, and this is minor, is, you know, I, I don't know why they like this Anthony Lamb. I, I was not impressed with him um, of the G League guys that they brought in last year. He was, to me, he's just somebody that is a G League guy. I, I don't know, you know, why they signed him. I don't know if the, that money is guaranteed. It might not be, but still, I just I, I didn't see the potential in that. When I was watching him in the summer league, I was like, "Yeah, he's he's about as exciting as he was when I saw him in the regular season." Not so much, and he, you know, not looking good in the summer league when you're not facing the best guys after not looking good in the regular season, it, it's it's not a good look. But overall, Stephen, I just got to say, I, watching it. I was giddy. I can't remember if I texted you afterwards, but I was giddy. Yes, you did. (laughs) Yes, you did. You said, no, I'll tell you, I'll quote you, Robert. I'm going to quote you as a media person. You said, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me all week. (laughs) It was the Rockets summer league game. Now, I'll be honest. My first thought was, man, you must have had a boring week, Robert, if that's the most exciting. (laughs) But no, I get it. I get it. You know, you're, you're as big into basketball as I am into baseball. I mean, that, that's how I feel about watching any kind of a baseball game, man. I just love it. And and the fact that these guys were bringing it like they were, you know, and, and everything we've had to deal with in Houston sports lately, you know, the Astros had a miserable series against the Twins and the Texans are in training camp. Nobody's really excited about that. Hey, I mean, I, who can blame you that the Rockets' summer league this is the most exciting thing that happened to you all week. I, I understand that. Potential is exciting in sports. What what can you say? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Uh, last thing on the NBA, Quentin Grimes. Uh, we forgot to mention this, but the University of Houston product drafted in the first round by the Knicks. And, and I bring it up for a couple of reasons. Congratulations to Quentin Grimes. Congratulations to the University of Houston. But it's a big deal, Stephen, because a University of Houston player gets drafted in the first round. And if you are Kelvin Sampson, and you are talking to players, it is very helpful to say, we are producing first-round picks. And Grimes was somebody that all of a sudden, because of the preparation I think that Sampson gave him, he was ready for a lot of the stuff that you have to deal with leading up to the draft. He impressed people, and it worked, and the Knicks drafted him in the first round. Yeah, it was great to see. And I'll tell you what, and it's something that we may not think about so much, but you know, when when you think of the University of Houston and, and top draft picks, you know, you talk about Hakeem Olajuwon and, you know, you talk about guys like that. Well, that's great, but that was a long time ago. You know, now that's something that Kelvin Sampson, as you said, can take that. It, it can only help your recruiting that much more. And as these guys, you know, continue to come, who knows? We, we may start seeing maybe a few more, you know, first rounders, late first round, early second round guys 
out of the University of Houston. So, yeah, happy for Quentin Grimes, but also happy for the University of Houston because couldn't happen to a better program and to a better guy than Kelvin Sampson. And just the way you know, we, we've talked so much about the way he coaches this team and how I, I'll tell you how glad I was when he signed that extension with with the, the program over a year ago. I just it's it's so good to see. So, yeah, we'll have to see how Quentin Grimes develops. Uh, wish he was with the Rockets, but you know what? We got to cheer for our own with U of H, no matter who they play for. It's been a long, long time since the Cougars had a first round pick. So yeah, that's that was a big deal. Uh, Diki Giroux, if you're a Diki Giroux fan, he's in, in, in with the Heat in the summer league, so you can follow him uh, with Miami Heat. I don't know if he's got much of a chance to make that team, but uh, he's got a chance to showcase himself a little bit. But a lot of fun stuff with the NBA in the last uh, few days, uh, especially if you're a Houston sports fan. Uh, before we move to the Astros conversation, got to tell you about our new partner, BetUS.com. You know the sports betting season's about to ramp up with the NFL and college football almost here. I mean, you can feel it. It's it's coming quickly, and you're going to need a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. It's not just football. They'll take action on just about any sport. Maybe you want to put something on the Astros or you know, whatever's going on, you, you may already know this, but BetUS has been a pioneer in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades with a diehard customer fan base. Their sharp, sharp BetUS mobile platform is easy, full of betting options. You can just log in to BetUS.com or call 800-792-3887. That's 800-79-BETUS. And here's the cool part. When you sign up, just use our promo code HST125, like Houston Sports Talk, HST125, to redeem a 125% sign-up bonus on your initial $100 deposit. Or if you use crypto, it's a $200 bonus. Again, that code HST125. To help our podcast, please sign up using either the BetUS link on our pinned Twitter post at the top of our page or go to our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net, and click on BetUS. It's on the right side of the page. If you're on your mobile app, just kind of go down towards the bottom. You'll see their big insignia. You click on there, and that helps us out a ton. You can follow my lead. Get your phone online and social sports betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS. You bet. You win. You get paid. Well, Robert, if you had used BetUS this past weekend and bet against the Astros, yes, I said against the Astros in the twin series, uh, you might have had a nice tidy sum of money. That that seems to be the thing. If you bet against the Astros, <laughs> against bad teams, I, uh, I hate to say it, but that's what it's looking like, isn't it? Man, I'll tell you what. They're like the surest bet in all of baseball when they're facing an American League tournament. <laughs> Just bet against them. Uh, well, Here's here's the good news, Robert. If the season had ended today and the playoffs started, the Astros would play the White Sox, not the Twins. So I guess that's something we can hold on to. Can you believe they're 12 and 13 in their last 25 games? Yeah. And you know what's funny, Robert, is and I know, you know, numbers can be deceiving, obviously. And it's not just, you know, one aspect of the team. I mean, the offense has not definitely not been clicking since the All-Star break like they were before. You know, but since the trade deadline, you know, the Astros did bolster their bullpen. And to some extent, it has improved. Their ERA has improved. It's 2.16 since the trade deadline. But, you know, the biggest thing, Robert, is the starting rotation is faltering. And, and this was something that I was concerned about before the trade deadline. Now, I didn't 
you know, have any grand visions that we're going to add a top light starter, but it, it did concern me and it still does because I, I think one of the reasons that the Astros have been struggling, the starters have only thrown 112 in a third innings out of 176 with a 475 ERA. And that was, that's after the break and before the break, you know, they were second only to Oakland in the amount of innings that they threw. So that has dropped drastically. And you combine that with, you know, just the, the way that the offense hasn't clicked and, you know, leaving runners on base and just not coming through. That's one of the reasons they're 12 and 13 in their last 25 games. I'm kind of settling on this idea that Luis Garcia is the Astros ace. Lance McCullers is so frustrating because he should be the ace. He's got the stuff. It just drives me nuts, Stephen, because you watch Lance McCullers over the years and it's like a broken record. Man, you got to figure out how to not have these innings where you throw a ton of pitches, you get in trouble, there's these shorter outings. Lance McCullers should be Justin Verlander. He should be able to give you seven innings automatic. Well, it's not only, you know, the stuff that he has that he should be an ace, Robert. It's it's the attitude. It's the cockiness. You know, he's got the attitude of an ace. But as you said, he's not coming through. And the problem with Luis Garcia showing that he can be your ace is, you know, they're going to start monitoring his innings more and more as the season goes on. I mean, he's, he's probably not going to pitch over, you know, 80, 85 pitches in a start now. So, you know, expecting him to be your ace at this point in the season, yeah, I, I mean, it's a great thought, but it's it's on shaky ground, unfortunately. You mentioned the starters uh, to start this whole thing with what the issue is, but also we can talk about the positives for just a second because that bullpen that Click went out and got, Yimmy Garcia, 0.55 whip so far with the Astros. Kendall Graveman, 0.46 whip. Phil Maton has been, you know, he had the one struggle, so it's 1.50. The only big disappointment of the bullpen, and this is frustrating, Montero was looking fantastic. He had a 0.83. Then he gets injured. And you can only hope, Stephen, that Pedro Baez is close to coming back because uh, that's the hope for the Astros as far as replacing Montero and, and what he was starting to give you. But Baez has pitched in eight games in the minor leagues. His numbers in Sugarland and Fayetteville, nine innings, 1.11 whip, just two earned runs. Yeah, it's certainly encouraging. You know, can he do it on the major league level? That's the big question. And, and But at least he's he's had some game situations where it looks like he can come through. I mean, yeah, they, they need somebody to come through, obviously. And, you know, the thing about Montero is he was struggling mightily before the trade but, you know, the the pitching whisperer, Brent Strom, I think he still has it. He, he seems to be able to, you know, at least take a, a lot of guys and turn them around. But now, you know, the injury, that's going to set him back. I mean, Robert, I, I know every team goes through this. But, man, <laughs> when you're following a team, you know, a, a certain team like we do the Astros, it just seems like it happens more often than it should. And Montero is just another example of a pitcher who, you know, he's looking great. Maybe looks like he's turning things around and then he gets hurt. I feel like I'm kind of Debbie Downer with the Astros because, you know, we can whine, but I mean, you look at the record, they're still in first place. It's a slimmer margin. It's getting a little too slim for me, but you look at the numbers, it still shows them as one of the better teams in baseball. Do you think we get just too caught up in this? This is, this is kind of your summer doldrums, right? Yeah, I do. And, and I was thinking about that. In fact, as we started the podcast, Robert, and you were talking about, you know, putting off the Astros conversation. And that is the one thought we have to keep in mind is that it, things could certainly be worse. Uh, the Astros are not only in playoff contention, 
<laughs> they are in first place. And, you know, they spent a lot of the season trying to catch Oakland. And they finally did. Now, you know, can they hold on to it? Well, you know, the only time will tell. I think a lot of it, Robert, is that we keep looking at the big picture. You know, when things like this happen, we say, well, is this going to carry the Astros deep into the playoffs? I I'm just not so confident about it. But one thing we can keep in mind is when you do get in the postseason, the roles change somewhat. You're not going to expect your starters to go six, seven innings. You know, you're, you're going to expect even one or two of them to come out of the bullpen and provide you some innings. And if these some of these other guys in the bullpen that we got in the trade down, deadline can bolster it, then the playoff picture really doesn't look so bleak. So I think we just have to keep the positives going. You know, the Astros are in first place. They're going to stumble a, a time or two. I, for me, I'm just hoping that they can end the season peaking at the right time and then go into the playoffs hot. And when that happens, well, anything is possible. The other thing, when the Astros struggle and, and when you struggle these days in baseball, it feels like it's forever because it is forever. When you have a team that has five, four-plus-hour, nine-inning games already this year, <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of bad baseball to sit through if a team is not playing well. Yeah, and sometimes even putting a runner on second base doesn't help you a whole lot. It's, I, I think that's a lot of it, Robert, is, again, as I said, the big picture – and, and when the Astros struggle, they seem to really struggle. It's not one of these things where, you know, a game here, a couple games there. You know, when their offense struggles, it just seems like they're either exploding all over the place or they are just not heard from at all. And it's the same with the pitching. So it, it just seems to go from one extreme to the other. The only real fun at Minute made this past weekend was the Astros Hall of Fame inductions and seeing Oswald, Billy Wagner, and Cesar Cedeno, uh, who you don't see all that often. But, Stephen, we we found out on Thursday that we lost Astros 2019 Hall of Famer J.R. Richard. Uh, I, I talked a little bit about it in that special podcast that I did a few days ago on Friday. hope everybody hears it. It's a, you know, got the J.R. Richard interview I did a few years ago and, and some other stuff. But what what was your reaction when you heard the news? Uh, I was so sad, Robert, because, you know, J.R. Richard was actually one of the first players that I remember when I started following the Astros. I think it, it was the 1972 season. That was my first season of following the Astros. And uh, J.R., I believe, came up in 71, like the year before. And I just remember, Robert, you know, this guy, I mean, we, we talk a lot about his size and we talk a lot about how, you know, how powerful his fastball is. Talk about the guy's slider, how powerful it was. He had a, a slider in the 90s. I mean, come on. He's not only intimidating from a fastball standpoint, his slider was intimidating. But the biggest memory I have of JR was when he first started, Robert, is I guess the memory that most people have is when he got on the mound and he threw, you had no idea where the ball was going. You know, the, the batters that got in the box against him, they were scared to death of him, not so much because he'd strike him out or, you know, get soft contact. But they had no idea if they were going to have to duck out of the way. The ball was going to go to the backstop or it was going to be right down the middle. But what what impressed me about Jr. is that you knew he had the potential. You know, it's like Nolan Ryan. I mean, Nolan was the same way when he started out. But Jr. developed into the type of pitcher you hated to face because he was just that darn good. And I just, you know, he went through so much with the Astros and you know, as much as we like to talk good about the Astros, the whole thing, the way they handled JR's situation, a lot of people may not remember, caused a lot of bitterness on JR's part, and, and rightfully so. 
you know, he felt like there was a problem with his arm and that something was wrong. The Astros really didn't believe him. They kept trying to trot him out there. And, uh, you know, you can talk about regret and, you know, how it, things might have been prevented. But honestly, J.R. Richard, definitely an Astro for all time. It's a shame that they only started the Hall of Fame for the Astros just a couple of years ago. But it's only fitting that he was one of the original members in 2019, certainly. So, yeah, condolences to his family. That was very sad. You were the one who texted me. That's that's how I found out about it, Robert. And the eerie thing is it, it happened the day after our last podcast. Last Wednesday, we were just talking about him. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the first thing I thought of, too, when I heard the news. I was like, man, that, this is very bizarre. And, and you think of JR as this flame that just was so hot and it was such a short period of time. But when I look at, you know, his numbers, you go back, he started in 1971. So his career, you could say it was 10 years, but then I, you start delving into the numbers a little bit and he, he just never got his footing until 1975. It took a while because the first three years when he was 21, 22, 23 years old, he got four games four games uh, by 1973 he got 16 games uh 74 yep. still not a ton he only had 15 games but you know that those first four seasons he, he was getting in but not really and then in 75 it starts to take off and he gets 200 innings and never looks back after that and then if you look at the last four years of him uh, as a astro it's uh Cy Young award he finished number seventh and when it was number 17th in MVP in 1976, he finished fourth for the Cy Young in 78. He finished third for the Cy Young in 79. Uh, again, he was in the top 20 in MVP that year. Only one all-star game, which is weird when you look at the numbers. He had that all-star game right before he had the stroke. So that was it. But the numbers were starting to build. And, and I asked Greg Lucas this. I called him and I said, well, how many more years do you think before JR would have been a Hall of Famer? How many more years did he need? And, you know, he said it might have been five, you know, because it it, it took a while before he he really got going. He, he, he really needed to compile more numbers. But, you know, his dominance and I think it's just he's one of those guys in your mind, Stephen. He was just so much bigger than life than maybe even the numbers were. And unfortunately, I think he was one of those guys where you, you have to kind of put the what if thing in front of it. What if he'd had a few more years? I think Greg is right. Five is probably a good number. One thing I do remember, Robert, when I first started following the Astros, as I said, I know it was in the 72 season. One of the reasons that JR's numbers were so light those first few years, he got sent up and down a lot. And I, I want to say back then, the Astros uh, AAA affiliate was Denver, the Denver Bears in the American Association. And I just remember he, you know, JR would go up and down and up and down. He got sent up and down a lot. And a lot of it just had to do with his wildness. I mean, he, you know, he had all the potential in the world, but you've got to put it together. And as you said, it, it took several years for him to do that. And it's interesting that 75 is when he started really coming into his own because that was actually one of the worst seasons <laughs> the Astros ever had. They, they finished last in 75. And, you know, in 79 is when we started to really see them becoming a playoff team. They almost made it in 79. And that's when you said Jr. was you know, moving up there in the Cy Young balloting uh, in, in 79. And then, of course, in 80, he certainly would have been up there if he had finished the season. And I remember in 1980, you know, he pitched the opening game of the Astros' regular season. It was against the Dodgers, and they won 3-2. to two. And I just remember how dominant J.R. was that game. And I thought to myself, man, 
if this guy is going to do this all season, nobody's going to touch him. He's going to win the Cy Young. You know how tragic it was that he couldn't reach that point. But I just that game sticks out in my memory, Robert, just because that's probably my biggest JR memory. I just remember how dominant he was that first game against the Dodgers. I don't know how they scored two runs off of him, frankly. And he was bigger than life in so many ways. If you go back and listen to the podcast on Friday where I rerun JR's interview, you know, we brought up some of the things, you know, it was in his biography. He struck out Willie Mays three times in his debut. He was such a good basketball player that he had 200 scholarships or 200 plus scholarships coming out of high school. Uh, great athlete. You know, he was somebody that did not grow up in the best of circumstances as far as wealth and privilege or anything like that. It, it was pretty poor uh, circumstances from from what he says in his book. But it's one of those stories that we call it a classic American story. But, you know, he goes from rags to riches, then he has the stroke, and then he's homeless. And, you know, th- there's the story that Kenny Hand tells in that podcast. But there, there's so many elements to this. I mean, it, it, it's a movie. It's a movie. You know, it really could be a movie, Robert. And, and it's just talk about the ups and downs of life. And I think so often we get carried away when we look at celebrities or heroes, you know, whatever we want to call these guys. And we put them on such a high pedestal. We think they can do no wrong. They can, you know, never have any wrong done to them. They can never have a bad life. You know, Jr. is a prime example of a guy that he had the ups and downs. Yeah, he had the fame. He had the fortune. And then he had the, you know, basically falling into a ditch, essentially, and becoming homeless and having about as low a period as anybody can have. And yeah, it, it would it would certainly make a great movie. Uh, maybe Hollywood should have latched onto that some time ago. But yeah, I, I remember listening to your interview when you first did it several years ago. But it's amazing, you know, how much time goes by and you listen to it again and go, man, I've forgotten that he said that, forgotten he did that. And it, it just... It was great that you even had the chance to talk to him. So, yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to go back and listen to that and then listen to some of the things that Kenny Hand had to say. And as I remind people in the podcast, he he was not feeling that good that day. It was kind of throwing me because his answers were pretty short. So I apologize if I sound a little bit thrown when you listen to the interview. But, you know, you you get it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You get some things that I think are going to be interesting for some people, some, some things that you might not know. Um, and, and Jr. as the interview goes on, I think he gets, it's, it's, it gets a little bit better. Um, he yeah, opened, yeah. Op- opens up a little bit more, doesn't he? He does. No, I, I noticed as things went along. And you, of course, if you hadn't pointed that out, I probably wouldn't have noticed that, you know, he wasn't as bad. But I did notice, I, I think as he got into it and he realized where you were going with it, he did start becoming a bit more revealing. So believe me, it's, it's an interview worth listening to, regardless of how he felt that day. I, I still think, you know, he was, you asked him some pretty candid questions, Robert. I mean, you didn't shy away from a lot of the controversies of how he felt, you know, about the Astros and how he felt about them now. And so I, I think Jr. was quite candid in that interview. Of course, he was in his book as well, but it's different. You you can write it in a book, but then sitting there when a, a reporter or, you know, a podcaster like yourself asks him directly face to face, you know, it, it can be a lot different environments. And now I think JR was very forthcoming. Yeah. A little shorter than I wanted it to be just because like I said, he just wasn't feeling well, but uh, there's some good stuff in there. And, you know, we talk about JR, we talk about Astros hall of fame weekend. I, I just loved hearing from Royo and Billy Wagner and Cesar Cedeno, especially Cedeno this weekend, since it seems like we don't hear from him much. And Steven, when I was watching the broadcast, they brought up a stat that I, I don't think I was ever aware of. 
He is the only player in baseball history with 20 home runs and 50 steals in three straight seasons. Yeah, and Cedeno was the steal guy. You know, back when, when stealing bases was the thing, Cesar Cedeno, the Astros' leader in steals, I mean, that was one of the things that you, you like to watch him on the base pass as much as you like to watch him hit. Because, yeah, he could steal with the best of them. You know, he'd, he'd have 50, 60 stolen bases a year easily. And I don't know, you know, he's another guy, really, that if he hadn't had some injuries and he did have some attitude issues, you know, during his time with the Astros, Leo DeRocher, you know, the, the former baseball legend and, and manager, actually called Cedeno a lazy player, which is interesting considering, you know, the, the accomplishments he did have with the Astros. And he, you know, he had a lot of pressure on him coming out. But he, unquestionably, one of the best Astros players of all time. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to downplay it. But there's another guy. You know, we talk about J.R. Richard. Cesar Cedeno had a successful career. But, you know, he was injured in the 1980 season as well. And think of what the Astros could have done if he had been a more contributor in, in the 80 postseason. Can somebody please explain to me why Billy Wagner is not in the Hall of Fame and, and why this is not a bigger thing or a bigger controversy? Because they threw up the stats and, and you just it's thrown right into your face when you see it in the stats. Most career saves all time. He's sixth with 422. Of those six guys, Trevor Hoffman, Lee Smith, Mariano Rivera, Francisco Rodriguez, John Franco, he has the best opponent batting average, 187. 187. His ERA, 231. It's the second best of those six guys. And it just seems like nobody's noticed it. Like, not even in Houston, sometimes you feel like it's gotten enough attention that, that he's not more into Hall of Fame consideration. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Robert. And I know we, we sound like a bunch of, you know, a couple of homers because we're Astros fans. But honestly, all you have to do is look at the numbers and you see that he's right up there. I don't know, you know... Closers, it's funny. I mean, they they voted all those other guys in you just talked about. And Billy Wagner, you know, it's certainly not because he didn't have a good personality with the writers. You know, that can always influence how, how the votes go. I mean, can you imagine Billy Wagner getting up there when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame? Can you imagine what his Hall of Fame speech would be like? Man, I just love to hear the guy talk, honestly. I love to watch him pitch, but I love to hear him talk because he's got some things to say. He's got that that good old country boy persona that... You just love, yeah, I, honestly, it's got to happen sooner rather than later, doesn't it? It's not like he's not exciting. The guy's a flamethrower. He's not Jamie Moyer when he, he's right. throwing junk. Uh, so, yeah, that that is it's baffling. But I, I, it was great this weekend to see the day that he gets into the Astros Hall of Fame. His son, Will, hits his first minor league, what you would say, professional <laughs> home run that game. And, and Billy Wagner was on his iPad a lot, according to the guys that were uh, calling the games over the weekend, you know, keeping up with everything that it was, his son was doing. So that, that was cool. Yeah, in fact, I know he was um, he was on the Astros radio broadcast briefly uh, on that Sunday. You know, I was listening to the game, and they even mentioned it. He said, well, you know, we're sorry to draw, drag you away from your iPad because I know you're watching your son play. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and the great thing is that Will Wagner, of course, was drafted by the Astros. So he's in the Astros organization He's a second baseman. He's not a pitcher. But, um, you know, maybe Will can do some magic. But, yeah, there's another Hollywood script, you know, the Hollywood probably couldn't write, is the day that his dad is inducted into his team's Hall of Fame, hits his first professional home run. So there you go. This Week in Astros History, our new favorite segment. Stephen, are you ready for it? Let, let's hear something. Oh, yeah. 
I am ready. You you talk about some positives. Well, we've got some positives for you as far as the Astros go. And it's funny, the first one that I have, it, it actually occurred a week ago today, Robert. And, you know, we did the podcast the next morning after this uh, anniversary. So I didn't have time to mention it, but it definitely bears worth mentioning. It was August 3rd, 2019. It was two years ago, very, very recent. But four Astros pitchers, combined for a no-hitter and a 9 to nothing win over the Seattle Mariners. All right, listen to these names, Robert. Aaron Sanchez, he pitched the first six innings. Will Harris, Joe Biagini, and Chris Davinsky each had one inning. Now, here's a trivia question for you, Robert. How many of those four pitchers are still with the Astros today? How many of those four pitchers would have a statue out in front of Minute Maid if Drayton was still the owner? <laughs> The, uh, the answer is zero. <laughs> none. None of those pitchers are with the team right now, uh, which is makes it interesting in itself. The other interesting fact, Robert, is that, you know, before that game is when the Astros inducted their Hall of Fame. It was, it was that weekend that they inducted their first Hall of Fame class that we were talking about. And of course, J.R. Richard was one of those guys. But, you know, that happened, and then the game happened, and I am almost certain— we need to go back in the archives, Robert. I'm pretty sure you and I did a podcast after that game, did we not? I'm sure we did. Yeah, I think I think so. I think you texted me and said, "Hey, let's do a quick pod. This no hitter's great." And it was right after the trade deadline. You know, when you got Aaron Sanchez, and and the thing about Aaron is you never really hear from him again because he got hurt, and the Astros let him go. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. All four of those pitchers who combined on that no hitter, gone. You got anything else? I do. Uh, August 7th, 1998, you know, we talk a lot about the trade deadline and uh, the Astros, the moves they've made over the years. Well, Randy Johnson was purchased that year at the trade deadline. Well, on August 7th of 98, pitched his first home game as an Astro in the Dome, of course. Ironically, that was a 9 to nothing win. Now, this time it was over the Phillies. Uh, Johnson, the big unit, scattered five hits. Bagwell homered twice in that game. And a sold-out crowd of 52,071 was the largest Astrodome crowd in 32 years to date, Robert. Who do you think they came out to see? You know, it wasn't Jeff Bagwell. It was Randy Johnson. <laughs> that team was fantastic. The electricity when they got Randy Johnson in this city, from everything that I understand, because I was out of town at that point. I was living elsewhere. But everything that I've heard, it was magical. And even the Justin Verlander trade, as big a deal as that was at the time, um, the the city was preoccupied with other things coming off of uh, Harvey, but I mean it was it was a huge deal when when uh, Randy Johnson showed up and it, it just looked like the final piece to a, a championship. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, unlike Justin Verlander, the, the season didn't turn out quite as well. I mean, the Astros bow out in the first round, and I, I think a lot of people viewed that trade in '98, you know, like they did Justin Verlander, that Randy Johnson was going to be the savior of this pitching staff and come in. Bring the Astros a World Series. Well, it didn't happen, but hey, the magic that led up to it certainly did. Now, here's another one for you. Jose Cruz turned 74 this past Sunday, August the 8th. Well, on his 39th birthday back in 1986, he recorded the 1,000th RBI in his career in a 5 to nothing Astros win over the Padres. Mike Scott pitched a complete game. Robert, you know what a complete game is these days? Well, Mike Scott pitched one. He had nine strikeouts in that win. And we've talked about many times what a beloved Astro 
Jose Cruz is. People do not understand how good Jose Cruz was in that 1980 playoff series. Watching that last year, they reran it, and I was just blown away at you know how good he was as a hitter and how on point he was in the National League Championship Series. When you know we we talk about the Astros, you know not coming through in the clutch at times uh, in those years leading up to their first World Series. That year, you got Cruz, you had Terry Poole. There were other guys that that were coming up clutch. It, it's just a lot of unfortunate things happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of unfortunate things. But now Jose Cruz had to definitely mention that because he's, he's 74. He doesn't even look 74, Robert. I think some people think he still looks 40 or he could even take a swing in, in the batting cage or something. But yeah, uh, I have one more. And I guess it's more of a Stephen Kerr memory than it is an Astro memory. I'll explain in a moment. But on August 4th, 1979, the Astros strand a record 16 base runners against the Atlanta Braves, and they still won the game, 5-4 to four in the Astrodome. Well, what I remember most, though, about that weekend, it was over a weekend, Robert, that was the day that my mother married my stepfather, and I was not present at the wedding. That's right. You heard me correctly. I was not present at the wedding. And the reason I wasn't present the wedding took place in Austin, which is where I live now. Back then, I still lived in Houston. I was going to high school and was living with my grandparents. And I got the worst case of food poisoning the night before that you will ever have. Ended up in the hospital. I, I ended up at uh, Bayshore Hospital in Houston. Missed the wedding. Missed. I was supposed to play in a baseball state tournament that weekend. Missed that, too. That's why I remember August 4th, 1979, more than the fact that the, the Astros strand 16 runners and still win a ball game. So you're saying the Astros stranded a lot of runners and you got stranded and there were some runners involved with, you know what I mean? <laughs> that, yeah, that some stuff. runners, if I bit, but, but you know what? My team still won the state playoffs without me. What does that tell you, Robert? <laughs> we, we end up going to the next level and I didn't have to, you know, I wasn't even there. So there you go. Great stuff this week in Astros history. Th thanks for, for doing that again this week, Stephen. You bet. Uh, not much real news for the Texans unless you wanted to talk about what the backup tight end position you want to go through. You want to work this thing out, uh, backup tight end? Yeah, we can end. talk about Farrell Brown. I mean, he, he looks like the tight end of the century as far as the Texans and a lot of the media. I mean, I've been reading on Twitter, honestly, Robert. Um, yeah, I, I know it's, you know, the, the flagship station talks about them a lot, but I mean, I've heard at least a couple of guys talk about how great Farrell Brown is. Um, well, he's looking great in camp. Is it going to translate into the, the the regular season? But I guess, you know, the thing about the Texans, their first preseason game against Green Bay this Saturday. Are you excited about it, Robert? I mean, are you are you are you clapping your hands and getting all, oh, preseason football's coming? Are you telling me that there's one Pharaoh in the desert of talent that the Texans have? Do you see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. That that's probably the the best laugh we might have with Pharaoh Brown this whole year. I don't know. Hey, let's let's skip the Texans because uh, if you love Hall of Fame speeches, NFL Hall of Fame speeches, this was your weekend. Nineteen guys, nineteen speeches. Wow. And there was some who got in and they didn't televise the speech. It's just a, a bunch of them. And Stephen. I'm typically a Hall of Fame speech guy, but yeah, that was a lot in one weekend. It was a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably more guys than uh, the Major League Hall of Fame would do in about 25 years, isn't it? I mean, you know, so there's some years they don't even let guys in. Uh, the NFL Hall of Fame tends to 
well, I think basketball actually lets way more in than anybody. Yeah, 19 guys. I mean, that is a lot for one year. Uh, you'd have to carve out maybe an entire week to listen to all those speeches. Yeah, it was a combination because it was it was two years worth of Hall of Fame stuff because last year's was canceled. Right, right. But keep in mind that I mean, I think it was one of one of the years was 12 speeches, yeah. 12 guys, 12 speeches. It was yeah, it was a ton. There was a local connection with uh, guard Alan Fanica from Lamar Consolidated High School, although didn't grow up here all the way, but ended up moving here and, and playing at Lamar Consolidated for high school. You had Steve Atwater, who thanked ex-Texans GM Rick Smith in his speech. I noticed that mm. when I was listening, and I listened to a lot of these speeches. And, and, and Stephen, because I'm getting old, or I am old, not getting old, I'm there, and I, I get a kick out of – I get a kick out of seeing these guys I grew up watching who – are still getting voted in guys that, you know, I watched as a kid, uh, wide receiver, Harold Carmichael Cowboys yeah. safety, Cliff Harris and wide receiver drew Pearson, which you might want to address in a little bit. Uh, you had Steelers safety, Donnie shell, uh, not an Oiler fan favorite. And then there was uh, Raiders coach, Tom Flores, no idea why they're just getting around to putting him in Canton two super bowls as a coach. You would have thought that would happen a long time ago. Of course, also a real trailblazer as far as Hispanic, NFL coaches, but just a couple of my thoughts on, on the hall of fame weekend. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Drew Pearson and I got to address that because I actually had the chance to interview Drew. It was, it was after his cowboy days, but I, I do remember it was a phone interview and I'll, honestly, Robert, I don't know if it was our phone system. I was working at a, a very cheap radio station here in Austin. So I think that had a lot to do with it. We lost the connection three different times and Drew Pearson was about the classiest person in the world. You know, he kept calling me back. I mean, he could have he could have just stopped, you know, right there and not even called me back. He called me back three different times. And, you know, he kind of laughed about it on the third time. He says, man, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but he was just such a class guy. And I just, I mean, I was not a Cowboy fan growing up. As you know, Robert, I was like you. I was, I was all about Oiler Blue, you know, love you blue and all that. But I have to tell you, you know, some of those Cowboy players, whether it's Roger Staubach, Drew Pearson, I, I had the interview, uh, pleasure of interviewing Preston Pearson at one point, another former Cowboy. You know, Drew Pearson was one of the classiest guys, I think, that, that you would ever want to talk to and certainly a great player. So I was very happy that he got in the Hall of Fame, you know, despite the fact that he was a Cowboy at one point. I don't know if you heard his speech, but it was a ton of – he had the most energy of anybody yeah. there. And and I kind of joke with a, a buddy of mine that's a Cowboys fan. I said, why is Drew Pearson yelling at me for 15 minutes? <laughs> well, it's because he's such an intense guy. And, you know, when, when I talked to him, he was pretty intense. I don't think he wasn't yelling at me. I don't re recall that so much. But, man, you talk about his intensity on the field and just his passion – yeah, he still has that passion. It's good to see, too. I want to bounce through a, a couple of quick things on some of the other guys because Steve Atwater gets into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Steve Atwater was at Arkansas before he went into the NFL. And uh, right. I, I can connect this to the podcast because he played with David Basil, former Houston Sports Talk guest, a buddy of mine. We were uh, working at the same TV station up in Little Rock. Basil was at Arkansas with Atwater for a year said Steve Atwater was a super nice guy just had nothing but good things to say and he went up to Canton to see the Hall of Fame speech Basil did um, also got to talk about Isaac Bruce because 
Stephen, I think I've told the story. I was on the field when Isaac Isaac Bruce scored the game-winning touchdown. I was shooting the game, the Super Bowl, when he scored that game-winning touchdown against the Tennessee Titans, and he comes right at me in the corner of the end zone. I kept I kept expecting them <laughs> to, you know, reference me somehow in all of this because I'm I'm right there. It's, it's the most important moment of Isaac Bruce's career, like right there. I, I mean, you should have gotten the game ball, Robert. I, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, you're in a, a Super Bowl play at the very end. I mean, the most crucial point of the game. I I just don't understand that. But well, what about how about just a shout out in the Hall of Fame speech somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, a shout-out in the Hall of Fame speech would have been nice, you know. If not the game ball, you know, at least recall. You know, I, I remember this guy, Robert Land, the camera guy, standing there, by, you know, in the end zone. I, yeah, I don't understand that, but oh well. Uh, at least you have the memory, Robert. They can't take that away from you. Also, when I worked in Memphis, we interviewed Edgerin James right before he was drafted. We talked to him and his agent. I remember we were in a hotel. He was wearing gold teeth he references the gold teeth at the end of his speech in a real funny last couple lines of his speech which if you haven't seen it go find it online but let me tell you what tons of tears in canton this weekend but steven just as many tears in tokyo the the olympics wrap up the closing ceremonies they're never as fun as the opening ceremonies uh and, and this one was mostly dull but i saw maybe my favorite moment speaking of tears in any closing ceremonies, the NBC crew, they get a shot of U.S. volleyball player Haley Washington sitting on the infield, looking at her gold medal and in tears. And as most everybody knows by now, Team USA won their first ever women's volleyball gold medal, at least not on a beach, their first gold medal. Right. And what grabbed me the most, Stephen, was that Haley had this real moment by herself and it was for at least 30 seconds. And then you see your teammate come over, sit on the ground with her. They exchange hugs. And then there's this pure joy in her eyes, uh, right following the tears that you could see it despite the masks that she was wearing, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we saw a lot of tears in Tokyo this year, Robert. And, I, you know, I hate to keep referencing the pandemic, but let's be honest. I mean, this was probably the most emotional Olympics ever, certainly in, in, in a long time. When you think about what these athletes have gone through, you played that interview on last week's podcast with you know the, the female wrestler that you covered. Go back and listen to that interview because if you talk about tears, I mean, that will bring you to tears because she had so many tears and they were so heartfelt and legitimate. And so, yeah, the, the volleyball team, uh, Washington in particular, like you said, so many tearful moments, so many emotional moments. I, you can't help but feel that way when you consider what all they went through. That they were postponed for a year. They they had to train for another year. Just all the things that the pandemic has caused. And then you you put the fact that they had no fans in Tokyo. No fans were allowed, except the ones who, of course, you know, went out and protested every single day outside the venues. That the you know they didn't even want the Olympics there at that point. So much they went through. And they got through it. So, you know, th this is going to be long remembered as one of the most emotional Olympics ever. And a lot of firsts, you know, especially for the U.S. with medals that they won, like in volleyball, you know, and some of the first sports like skateboarding and things like that. Yeah, we, we've got a lot to take away from this Tokyo Olympics for sure. Going back to volleyball, which I stayed up Saturday night to watch the gold medal game. Karch Karai, who's pretty much the Simone Biles of volleyball. Speaking of tears, in tears after he coached the volleyball team to their first ever gold. And the most amazing part, 
Karch was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2017, 2017, four years ago. Didn't tell his team until this year after he was declared in remission. Hmm. Didn't tell the public until right before the gold medal match. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, to talk about the things you find out about people. I mean, I worked for a guy. He was my boss. And I think it was five or six years after I've been working for him, I found out that he'd had cancer several years ago, never told anybody. He mentioned the anniversary one day just in passing. But yeah, four years ago that this guy gets cancer and nobody knows about it until now. It's it's funny how the Olympics just bring out <laughs> the stories and the things in people. Yeah, and if you don't remember Karch, I mean, he goes back a ways, uh, his Olympic journey. Yeah. Won the gold in 84 and 88 in team volleyball, then came back eight years later to win the gold in beach volleyball. The 84 gold was the first in U.S. men's volleyball, and he's the only person to win in both team and beach volleyball. How good was this guy as a player? He won 148 tournaments, the most in history, and I think that's to this day. Wow. Yeah, excellent. Just, to, you know, the, again, the sports or the people we don't follow, you know what, they work just as hard as everybody else, and, and they can be just as inspiring, so... It's great to see that the volleyball, uh, you know, we, we don't talk a lot about it, but uh, I certainly, I, I was, I knew the volleyball team in college, you know, most of the girls really well. And, you know, even you just watching them play and the athleticism, it's great. So I'm glad that the U.S. team did so well in volleyball. You mentioned the Katie wrestler, Tamara Mensa Stock, who we talked about last week. She gave her winnings, if anybody didn't see it, her Olympic winnings to her mother, for a food truck. So look for her mom's food truck around Houston. And, and uh, right. that was her mom's dream. I mean, just her story just is, keeps going, continues to be great. And next I wanted to ask you, did, did you catch the women's marathon? I did not have a chance to. You texted me about it. Um, and I don't remember. I was, I was doing something else at the time. But yeah, what a great story that is. Yeah, Wisconsin's Molly Seidel shocked the world. I know a lot of you know by now, but... She gets the bronze, third marathon she'd run in her life. But my favorite yeah. part was when she's talking to friends and family back home after the race. And we got this great moments that they had throughout the Olympics where, you know, they get to talk to their family. The only good thing about the pandemic was that that those moments they would have, they would show in a video monitor. They could get, get to talk to their to the people that were watching back home. First thing she said is, we did it. I love that she said, we, yeah, we did it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There is, a, you know, there is an E in team and a we in team and she used it, you know, and, and yeah, the third, only the third marathon she's ever run, Robert. You know, I, I, it's funny. I, uh, I've interviewed several Paralympic track athletes over the last few weeks. Of course, the Paralympics are coming up shortly after the Olympics, but you know, one thing that a track coach I spoke with told me is, you know, most people start track and field or, you know, that type of thing. They, they started very early on, uh, you know, even before their freshman year in high school in many cases. And so the fact that, you know, someone like Molly can pick up the sport so fast and do so well so quickly in, in something like the Olympics I mean, that's incredible in and of itself. So that that is yet another great story. Yeah, it wasn't just the we did it. It, it, it. Basically, she said three things to them, and they were all great. First, she said, we did it. Then the next thing out of her mouth, she goes, I'm so tired. 
<laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> wonder why. <laughs> yeah, that that was just beautiful. I was like, yeah, of course you're tired. You just ran a marathon in the Olympics. And hey, then... I did see that quote. I didn't see the the we did it like until you just brought it up. I did see the I am tired, though, and I did have to chuckle on that one. What was the other one? And then finally, like any good Wisconsin girl, she finished it off. She goes, please, please drink a beer for me. <laughs> oh, she didn't say have some cheese for me. Okay, well, like a beer, I guess. Is, yeah, <laughs> you know the, the Milwaukee reference, maybe. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. The no, it's that's yeah. a total Wisconsin thing. It was, Absolutely. It was that was fantastic, and uh, we can reverse this into Houston sports talk again because uh, since our last pod, Houston area products, Simeon Richardson, Scott Casimir, Shane Baz, they all won the silver in baseball. Ridgepoint High's Bryce Dedman wins gold in the 4x400. That's kind of an under-the-radar Houston story. And then Christy Mewis, who plays for the Houston Dash. A Houston Dash yeah. uh, member wins a bronze medal for the women's soccer team. Yeah, they were a little bit disappointed, but still, that that's cool. And and I don't know if we mentioned this, Stephen, but Sarah Robles, who's made her home in Houston for the past five years, she trains here, became the first that's American right. women woman to win two gold medals, or I'm sorry, two medals. They were bronzes in weightlifting. She won a bronze in Rio and in Tokyo. Yeah. Hey, any Houston connection, man, you train here, you're here. And so, and, and you talk about Scott Cashmere, man, there's a name from the past that you didn't think about until these Olympics go, wow, Scott Cashmere's pitching. So that was great. So, I mean, I, I we probably just need to sit down and count how many Houston area products were in these Olympics, Robert. It'd probably fill a couple pages if you did it on paper. There's a lot. Yeah, there's there's a few. The big thing is they all did well. It was, it was like most of them they got a did. medal. I mean, I think there was a couple of them that I haven't mentioned. Like there was a, a table tennis, and there's a couple of them that I, I haven't mentioned that didn't that, that didn't medal. But Houston repped and showed up well, and they came home with 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 medals. A lot of them came up with medals that you're like, well, I wish they would have won the gold because we usually win the gold there, but just a lot can happen. It's the Olympics and just some really great stories all the way around. And, you know, I'm going to miss it, but you, you can't miss it for long because what we're, we're talking about the Winter Olympics here in the next in the next few months in February. Well, you know what? That's right. In fact, you and I were talking about that, I think, last week, Robert, and I was talking about the Winter Olympics and the Paralympics and so forth. And you said, well, that's only five months away. I had to stop and think about it and calculate. Oh, wow, you're right. So you know, of course, normally it wouldn't be like that. But since the Summer Olympics were postponed a year, you know, you're coming up on the next year, the Winter Olympics, usually in February. So, yeah, we're only about five or so months away from the Winter Olympics. So if you if you still want your Olympic fix, you're not going to have to wait too long. And, of course, I'm always interested in the Paralympics. Uh, you know, they're going to get more TV coverage this year than they ever have. And that's coming up later this month. So, you know, if, if you still want some kind of Olympic-style competition – the Paralympics are just a couple weeks away. Just a bunch of stuff in sports this summer, which is unusual with what's going on with the Rockets and the Olympics and all that. I mean, we've got we've got more than this has a, been a more interesting summer than normal, Stephen. Oh, a lot different than last summer. Last summer, Robert, we were pulling our hair out, or you know, last spring certainly, and going into summer, going, what in the world are we going to do? <laughs> what what are we? How many conversations did we have about? What are we going to talk about on this podcast? There's no sports. <laughs> There's nothing to talk about. So, yeah, a far cry from last year to this year. Yeah. Stephen, just to let you know, I I'm never pulling my hair out. I'm usually trying to put it back in at this point. Okay. Yeah, that's right. In your case, I've, I've got too much. I need to pull some of it out. <laughs> I need a haircut. <laughs> Give it to me. Give it to me. Um, I'll go gladly. I'll, 
I'll give it uh, instead of donating it to what is that? Locks of love. I'll just give it to you, Robert. Hey, uh, Steven, thanks so much uh, for doing another great show with me. And I just want to wrap it up by reminding everybody that this show brought to you by BetUS.com, America's favorite sports book. When you use it, use the code HST125 to redeem a 125% sign-up bonus on your initial $100 deposit. If you forget, look for the promo code in the show description to help our podcast sign up using either the BetUS link on our pinned Twitter post or go to the website, HoustonSportsTalk.net, and click on BetUS on the right side of the page. Until next time, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.